Hello, everyone, and welcome to another global conversation with my friends Christopher Scipio and Saleya Khan. Um, and for those who remember us from the Urban Equity Chats, uh, first iteration of, of, these, uh, of these webcasts, Chris and Saleya were part of my uh, part of my from earlier conversations. So basically, I've had them return and this conversation is going to be great because I know that they're great. So be that as it may, um, welcome everyone to another another episode uh, where we're going to be talking about gender equity and allyship. Um, so let's begin with the conversation. Oh, and by the way, I can't forget, Priya will be, uh, Priya's back again uh, to, to help lead our conversation uh, with, uh, with respect to uh, our topic today. So with that, let's, uh, let's start off you know, talking about what we're what we're going to be uh, discussing here on gender equity. So, let's start from a global perspective here, as this is the conversation about uh, you know looking at it from a global perspective. So, you know, um, the UK UK based drinks Diageo uh, is the second highest placed firm in a study of global gender equality, which rated France to be the best country overall for for gender equality with the UK not far behind. I mean, what does that say about Canada? Um, global progress on gender equality is happening, but is far too slow. And we know this for a matter of fact, it's easy to def uh, just get frustrated by the wasted opportunity this creates for everyone. Uh, global progress on gender equality is happening and including gender equity. Uh, and, uh, and, but taking a three-year overview when the research and the data and trends in company practices, legislation, and investment shows that this progress is starting to build its own momentum. So gender equality and gender equity is coming. The problem with the prototypes of doing this type of work is that who tend to succeed in organizations are people who best fit that prototype of gender equity. You fit in, and that's a term that I can't stand in this in this world, you fitting in. Uh, but you know, be that as it may, that's only my thoughts. Um, you know, you you fit in by default, you walk in, it's easier for you to access networks, and it's easier to be sponsored, easier to, for people to see you as a leader, just simply because you match in mind what looks good when it comes to leadership. But the reverse is also true. So the more ways that you differ from this ideal standard, um, the more challenges you're going to experience trying to advance at work. So this is both true for men and women, but more so for women. Um, the barriers are not just that women experience, but men also experience challenges to that. So how do we become allies uh, as men in this work in supporting the women in terms of in terms of leadership, in terms of opportunities within our within our workplaces and our organizations? So so with that introduction, um, let's uh, let's begin. Uh, first, I'd like to reintroduce our, our guests, uh, Christopher Scipio and Salia Khan. So I'll let them take the floor with uh, with their introductions. So let's start with Salia. Uh, tell the audience again uh, about yourself. So personally, I always prefer to go alphabetically, which means Christopher goes ahead of me. And then I'll start. Okay. okay. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just teasing you. This is all about gender <laughs> equity right gender here. You know what? That would be some gender equity because we are challenging the uh, the normative behavior that says women always go first, right? So there you go. So yeah, so Christopher Scipio, uh, pronouns are he and him. I live in Ottawa, traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. Um, my day job, I'm a federal public servant. Uh, I've been in the public service for the past 13 years, uh, currently working on Black inclusion. So. I lead a secretariat uh, called the Black Executive Network, uh, which includes Black executives across the whole federal government. Um, our goal is to provide them with support to be effective in their jobs and also to work with the federal government to address anti-Black racism. Happy to be here. Thanks. So my name is Saliha, uh, Saliha Khan. I'm currently, my pronouns are she and they. I am uh, speaking to everybody here from City of London, Ontario, Canada. Um, we are uh, covered under the, the London Treaty. Um, this is basically, there are three um, sister nations just 20 minutes away from me. Uh, we've got the Chippewas on the Thames and we've got the um, 
uh, Muncie, Delaware, as well as the Oneidas. And so this particular uh, city, this particular land, um, I see myself as a settler in this area. I moved to Canada in 2001. So I'm a economic migrant, uh, emigrant, and also a settler in this land. And as such, I recognize my um, conscious and unconscious complicitness in the continuing and ongoing colonization of this land. And so as such, my commitment to truth and, truth and reconciliation always comes in from recognizing what my role is and my commitment towards decolonization uh, wherever it is that I can take part in it. That's just a little bit about me. Um, professionally, I am currently working as a senior inclusion, equity and inclusion and human rights lead uh, at Toronto Police Service. Uh, basically, my 20 plus years of experience has been predominantly within the sector of policing and law enforcement across Ontario, um, and also being engaged with some stuff that's happened globally in, in that same uh, sector. And mostly it's been um, embedding and integrating conversations around equity, conversations around uh, framework changes, human rights framework, of course. Um, and um, yeah, basically trying to create a safe space for those who work inside it and, and make sure that uh, those who are working with them and are being offered and provided services with them are also uh, being looked after safely. Okay, thank you. Thank you both for being here. It's, um, I know that I have met Saleha before in a previous uh, life. Um, and I know Christopher, this is the first time that I'm meeting you. So I'm really honored to have both of you here and uh, getting a chance to connect with uh, all of you on this amazing topic, because to me, I've, I hold this one close to my heart as well. Um, so Andre, thank you for the introduction in terms of this topic. And just in hearing what you were talking about with respect to the studies been done, it's a couple of things that really come out, but I think in order to kind of have like a, uh, base for our conversation today, what I was going to put out to both of you was really to get a sense of what you think the difference is between gender equality and gender equity. I can speak a little bit to that. So um, I just have one question. Sorry, Chris. Sure. Um, you know, we, uh, Andre, you were talking about how France is number one in gender. Is it equality? Yeah, gender equality. They, in Europe, they tend to use more equality than equity in their conversations. And that's that's fine. I mm -hmm. was just kind of wondering what benchmarks were actually used for that, that friends came up on top. And I know I may sound very um, well, surprised and, and a little bit questioning, but I am mm -hmm. um, just because uh, of the fact that we know and hear and have seen evidence and read research on the experiences of racialized women, um, Muslim women, um, and just the fact that there is a population of French born seeing themselves as French above all people who are not deemed French enough in the first place. Um, by the institutions, by the government, by the people, by the majority, by the European majority, French majority over there. So it, it, it's just really, it was a little surprising for me to, to hear that. And I know, I've, I mean, it was surprising when I read it first and it's still surprising even when I hear it now. So mm -hmm. uh, again, like for me, the, the question always comes up is, first of all, what benchmarks are being used to establish that tier? And that second part would be, who's actually establishing those benchmarks. Because mm -hmm. if we are able to answer those questions or at least maybe kind of probe a little bit in there, we may start unraveling the issues around gender equity and gender equality, uh, mm -hmm. right from the very kind of the basis of where this conversation even is supposed to start. Yeah, I could add something. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, to, and I think Salia's question helps answer the question about the difference between gender equity and gender equality, because Within the context of France, racialized women, black women, women from North Africa who might speak French, were born there, as Leah is saying, are not treated with equity. They experience racism, they experience gender discrimination, ableism, and so on. And it's oftentimes this idea of gender equality 
is because we are looking at the number of white cisgendered able-bodied white females right who benefit yep. we're not talking about white women who are disabled we're not talking about white women who are trans and disabled and also muslim right and those things matter so i think the equality thing and the problem with equality is it's very much like okay we have this narrative this this dominant narrative which is based on white men so can you get a job yes so now the workforce what used to be 90 percent men now it's 50 50 check equality mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. when those women come into work they have to shrink who they are they can't bring their whole selves to work so if they can't bring their whole selves to work we have no equity right if if to be a woman leader means you have to replicate all the behaviors of a man whichever man and that type of leadership we think it is then we don't have equity so you know i think like within my work in the federal government canada the canadian public service ranks top in the number of uh for gender equality the number of women in executive positions right like 54 percent but those are all white women <laughs> that's what it comes down to right mm -hmm. like for black public servants indigenous public servants disabled public servants they they face career stagnation they're not getting those opportunities so we have to be very careful about the language we use and um like Saleha, i any survey that comes out that puts this country or that country on top i'm like by whose rubric right mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's an important question yeah mm -hmm. and i think what i'm hearing you say too is like the pro like how problematic it is if you're pushing um and using the term equality versus equity what what sort of agenda is being pushed and who is that really representing in terms of when you're talking about equality versus equity who is who's being included and i guess more importantly who is being excluded from that who mm -hmm. is actually being represented it's That's interesting also so the other thing that I, I know chris what you said kind of tweaked something for me when you talked about public service you know canadian federal public service 54 percent like that's fantastic and i remember when the first parliament was pulled together under Trudeau. It was, hey, we've got a, we've got gender parity. So that terminology was it, they didn't, they did not talk about gender equity or gender equality. They talked about gender parity just because all they wanted to really refer to was that it's number to number, that we can actually compare the numbers and the kind of the numeric side of stuff, which is also interesting because you can have 50% women or 49% women in an organization but where are they actually situated? Um, what are the roles that have been designated to them? And what are the expectations um, that kind of surround their existence, irrespective of which tier or which rank they hold? Um, it, was, it was very interesting because I, I just today I was reading up on uh, an article and I believe it was up in LinkedIn uh, and it talked about how a woman has decided that she will no longer mother anybody at work. Um, and, and it was very interesting. I mean, she started talking about her experience uh, and she you know, identifies as a female. So she was talking about her experience as, 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 a, as a wife, as speaking to you know, her mother-in-law. And then basically from that, she said, okay. And then you know what? It was kind of a bit of an epiphany for her to say, I am not going to be doing all that I've been doing, mothering everybody around me just because somehow it became an expectation, you know, and it's interesting because even in the conversations that we have around the skills and the abilities that women bring into, and I'm going to be specific around law enforcement, for example. Sorry, I had a phone call. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're sorry, I couldn't hear you. <laughs> Yeah, you know that they're the fact that they're nurturing, the fact that they are uh, compassionate, the fact that they can communicate more effectively, they have mm -hmm. a calming effect. And I'm sitting there going, "You clearly have not talked to my kids." Uh, <laughs> the calming effect is definitely not coming out of that one. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's 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 just that kind of mother goosey experience of what we expect a woman to be and a mother to be, and and then just that's it. I don't. Yeah. Just I was just so going to say, just, just hearing that is, 
is so interesting because I know in management roles too, being said, well, you know, you're like a, a leader, you know, at home, you, you know, you take care of everything at home. So, you know, automatically there's a sense that you can manage, right? You, you manage everything at home, you're a multitasker, you can, you know, you're able to do all these sorts of things. So there's almost this sense that somebody who has those qualities must be able to manage. But what if you're the one saying, I don't want to manage. I don't want to manage everything. I don't want to be a manager. I actually want to take a different role. I don't. I don't want to have that kind of role. I can be a leader in different ways, but leading doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to manage. And maybe that sense of mothering might come from that, and that sort of um, uh, putting those sorts of skill sets and kind of putting uh, that kind of expectation on somebody in that kind of role really, you know, resonates for for some women. So thank you for sharing that. And then uh, let me add to one more point before before we move on to to our, our through our conversation. You know, I think it's just the fact of how how our organizations have been structured. Right, we're focused on hierarchy. We're focused on um, you know executive presence. Who makes up executive presence? Um, you know, we're all fixated on on titles. And and yeah, so so these are things that are that we're trying to uh, accomplish. Sorry, we have the. I'm gonna pause it. Yeah, so basically, you know, like I said, you know, we're talking about uh, different perspectives from an organizational how an organizational structure. It's mainly for for white males, right? So now, what's the point? You know as we're talking as we're, we're talking about this these are things that that come to mind and you know and with the fact of the matter that you have you know we're talking about this um uh you know the conversation surrounding um uh the the gender you know the the you know the gender and gender equity and whatnot and um these are things that really resonate because of who is in power right and we're so fixated on on the titles that it doesn't allow for equity to occur within within our organizations, at least in principle. So, so these are things that kind of come to mind as I've been listening to this conversation. So, um, so yeah. So, so with that, let's go to the next uh, next point here that I wanted to raise here as we're talking about this. Um, you know, as I mentioned, you know that it's that it's uh, mainly men who are dominating the these these conversations, and you know, in terms of later on, we'll talk about allyship. So um, what have you found with managers and organizations in addressing the cultural differences, uh, especially when addressing uh, gender equity from your experience? What have you what have you found? I'll start with uh, I'll start with Chris. Yeah, sure. I'll take that one. Um, you know, so it is a really good question. Like, you know, everybody says the right words, right? They want to see equity, they want to see inclusion, they want to be representative. But the idea about equity, it's about, you know, the rules that govern the system, the quote unquote organizational culture, the norms, right? So it's a case in point. Oftentimes organizations will say, you know what, we want to recruit more women. Blanket statement. They don't say what kind of women, they just want to recruit more women. And they're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll put an ad out. We, and we'll just put it in, I don't know, a women's magazine, or we'll go to a women's association, or we'll put in the title, we want women in our office. They don't change the job description. So it uses language that's very masculine, right? Delivers on action plans, leads this, all this kind of gendered language. Um, they'll have 10 to 12 qualifications uh, to qualify. Data shows that uh, most times for women to apply for white women to apply for jobs, they need to have 90 to 100% of the qualifications. One could only imagine what it is if you're a brown, black, or indigenous racialized woman, right? So saying you want to attract women, but not changing the job description doesn't help. We shouldn't assume that all women are mothers. So they'd be like, oh, we give flexible hours if you're a parent. That's cool if you're a parent. What if you're not a parent? What if you're in a situation where the dad is the primary parent, not the mom? That's not attractive, right? So it's important to, I think, as organizations try to advance equity, 
that they actually have conversations with the women who work in their organization. Have those conversations to be like, what is working for you? What's not working? What exactly do you need? Because oftentimes it's a bunch of cisgendered, able-bodied white men sitting amongst themselves, having a conversation. And in their mind, they just replace their persona with a woman's persona. And they think it's all the same. And then we don't change anything. So I think that's actually why we're not getting to where we're going. And too often the conversations are not going deep enough, which is like, what are the structural issues that we need to have? And then the last thing I'll say on that is, um, you know, there's that new book, uh, the, it says like, um, I'm not yelling, like it's a book, a black feminist book, and I apologize for misquoting. But, you know, oftentimes qualities that are celebrated in white women are frowned upon when black, indigenous, brown women, racialized women do those same things, right? That whole idea of, oh, it takes initiative, but if you're a racialized woman, she's hard to deal with. Oh, um, brings good ideas and is excitable and passionate. Oh, she's distracted and confused. The man does it. Oh, he's so passionate. Look at that leadership, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And all of those things are, are where the problems are happening. So we have to really have specific programs. And one of the things that in my job right now with the Black Executive Network, because we're focused on Black executives, is saying, if we're gonna have a leadership training program, if we're gonna talk about professionalism, let's not talk about what you wear because Black hair is professional, whether it's an Afro, whether it's in braids, whether it's that knee a long shortcut, whether it's a ball head, like whatever the case is, right? Uh, if you're wearing um, dresses and business suits that are bright and colorful, those are business suits. That is professional. Nobody says you got to wear this plain outfit and these things that center whiteness, right? And so again, we, we talk about one equity and inclusion, but we don't do the work to make things equitable, right? It's not enough to hire people mm -hmm. and then not change the rules. And then people leave. You're like, oh, I can't find women. Well, why would anybody want to work in your organization <laughs> if to work there means I have to code switch who I am all the time, right? So I'll stop there. I just wanted to say, I, I love what you said because what it reminds me of is how we are so enthusiastically attracting the talent, right? We're like, yes, come apply with us. Yes, this is mm -hmm. what we're going to give you and absolutely value what you bring in, et cetera, et cetera. And then be your authentic self, be true to yourself. That's exactly why we're hiring you. And the moment the person decides to be, the woman decides to be authentic to herself and true to herself. And that includes what she's going to choose to wear from accessories, you know, simple accessories. Mm -hmm. to even in all honesty, the shade of the lipstick that she's wearing. Yeah, that's right. right. Like I'm, I'm just going to point at me. And mm -hmm. it's just like the, the kind of commentary that comes in, which is so... Um, interesting, I'm just going to leave it at mm -hmm. that, is, oh my God, you can pull this color off. I could never pull this color off. And so you're, you're just kind of sitting there going, okay, was that a compliment? Was it a backhand? I mean, perfect example of a backhanded compliment, but at the same time, you just kind of wonder, oh, maybe, maybe I'm not Maybe I'm not doing something right. And so you start taking away parts of you and wrapping them up and putting them away and putting them away until you end up being the black and white grayscale, you know, figure of what you would be or what you would see yourself to be. And it's interesting because we keep talking about, you know, words like equity and equality and gender side of it. But even in terms of the expectation that women will be wearing suits comes from that expectation that men wear suits and 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 again the expectation that when we talk about women's suit it's a skirt which is hitting right above your knee not weight not not mid thigh just just above your knee then there's an expectation that thou shalt be dressed in a certain particular way where you know whether you're wearing heels you know at least two inch heels all that kind of stuff that somehow gets shoved into us as the as being kind of the 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 modus operandi for being what a professional woman looks like 
and somebody else walks in who just wants to be themselves and be authentic because they thought that's what they were hired for, all of a sudden they're not deemed professional enough. So it doesn't matter the degrees and the capacities and, and the capabilities and the skill set and the conversation and the ability to, to do the work that they were hired to do, double, like double the, the effort. It's just because they don't fit the mold. And I know, Andre, you talked about something about fitting in or whatever, but it just comes down to that. Every time, even, even for me, even the discussion around gender equality and gender equity comes from that expectation that us identifying as not the, what would be considered as the normative superior gender to be in a workplace, we, we automatically fall short of, mm -hmm. of being in that space of leadership. I was just gonna quickly add as so powerful to hear uh, Christopher and, and also with you, Soleil, I think you can probably relate in some ways just doing the work that you've done in law enforcement and policing. But Christopher, when you're talking about, you know, what the expectations are of women and what might be expected of them in terms of when they're applying or, or all of that. I remember when I was joining the military, the first question that somebody had put to me was, what about your children? Did you think about your kids? And I thought, how oh, did anybody else ever ask a, a man when you know he's in a family because a lot of the men tend to get the deployments women don't so when i joined the military the first thing that people were asking me were did you think about your children because my children were younger at the time even when i was applying to policing first thing i was asked was well did you think about your children and i thought i have family and friends that are male and went into policing and went into other forms of law enforcement, went into military. Not once were they ever asked if they thought about their children, not once. Needless to say, I still joined the military and stayed there for six and a half years and retired. But I mean, that was the first thing that people would ask me. And even while I was in those uh, positions, people still connect, constantly ask me, well, you know, are you okay because of your children? Are you okay because of your family dynamics? So I just found it really fascinating uh, and also asking me if I had uh, family support, knowing that I came from a, I'm from a South Asian family and I come from that sort of situation where, yeah, no, nobody was happy with me joining the military or going into something that was non-traditional. So I find that really resonates and I don't think that that has shifted and changed despite the fact that, you know, a lot of these sorts of areas, particularly in like law enforcement or in public service and those sorts of, you know, especially in like law enforcement, maybe even in looking at military, those sorts of areas where there may be even male dominant are really pushing to have, you know, women, um, you know, racialized women and whatnot come into these fields that shift has not happened. Um, you know, the supports of that has not happened yet. So I find that really powerful what you both have shared. And so I think you can really completely understand that that still hasn't changed in terms of uh, the workplace. So just to sort of um, kind of move forward in this conversation. So I think, I mean, we could go on forever on this. Um, but I wanted to sort of connect with you about, I know that we had talked about this one article and I'm gonna just quickly uh, bring it up, was there was an article that um, was written by Elizabeth uh, Kellen. It's from 2020, it was uh, published in the Harvard uh, Review. She pointed out that despite a lot of work that was being done over decades to work towards gender equality, she points out that not, um, not much progress has been made towards gender equity specifically. She states that it's because of uh, something that she called, quote unquote, gender fatigue, where the existence of gender inequality is acknowledged in general. However, it is simultaneously being denied that it exists in one's immediate work environment. What are your thoughts? Uh, and I'm looking to both of you. What are your thoughts about this? And do you feel there's been much um, progress made? What are your thoughts? So I can say, I mean, looking looking at the conversation that's happening within the policing communities, and again, I'm going to stay focused within Ontario, within Canada. Um, I don't see the issue of gender fatigue in a way that Elizabeth is describing. Um, 
over the last 10, 10 years, 15 years, uh, in fact, the initial conversations around anything equity related started with conversations around bringing in women into policing. Interestingly enough, the conversation also right around that time started around merit and lowering standards because the expectation is that if women are going to be joining, then they are not going to be equal in, in, in you know, some, some of the aspects around, especially, and again, of course, a lot of times physical limitations, um, being a young mother or the possibility of them uh, entertaining motherhood. Uh, are usually some of the ones that you know kind of issues that tend to tend to be brought up a lot more and it's i can say that over time organizational uh networks like military women and law enforcement uh international association of, of women and policing these uh particular organizations really started normalizing the conversation around what it means to be to be a woman, focus remained what it means to be a woman wearing a uniform, which also meant, and it still do, and it still does, which also means that the the larger population of women that tend to work in law enforcement happen to be in a non-uniform profile, job profile, and so yeah. so many of the civilians find themselves kind of just left aside and not really being made part of the conversation. Having said that, recognizing that at least it's one spot for us to start, I think it's really important. And absolutely the fact that within policing, and I'm just going to say this, there's definitely been a lot of conversation around what it means to be a woman in policing in Ontario and how things need to be done differently. Now, I like what you said, Chris, about how job descriptions never change. And if anything, maybe with a lot of conversation that is going on, on on the global level of what policing looks like, maybe there is there are probably now opportunities for, for people to start looking at what those different job descriptions can be and then focus on the capacities and the skill sets that are required, which in some cases are genderless, but we somehow attribute it to one gender above the other. And perhaps we we might be in a place where we can say, okay, we're looking for a certain set of skills. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or or a gender, you know, or a trans person, that you can actually have that capacity to 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 do the job that you've been hired to do. But I know I'm, I'm kind of digressing over there because when it really comes down to what the conversation is happening, I'm finding more and more work is happening. So a lot of the police organizations right now they're they're looking at and have established women in policing internal support networks. And so those conversations about what is my job, what is going to make my job easier, what is required, um, you know, definitely issues around people when they, you know, especially like women, um, do they take the maternity leave or uh, do they do they do they take time off or the fact that as soon as uh, as soon as a, a woman is pregnant uh, and she's expecting, she's no longer allowed to carry a firearm. Like those are some of the issues that are really that probably really really need to be dealt with, right? So those are issues that are now finally being talked about because that's what the conversation around equity is actually going to lead to. Christopher, what are your thoughts about about all of yeah. this? So. It's always a matter of perspective, right? So for the four of us as racialized people, we never get to have fatigue. We live in this skin 24-7, right? No, Tria, you don't get to be like, today I'm just a member of the military. No, you are a brown woman in the military. Andre is a biracial man doing this work. So Leia is a brown woman doing this work in the police force. I'm a black man doing this work, right? So this idea of fatigue, we're not the ones who are fatigued. It is those who the system is designed for, the white cisgendered man, the white woman, the model minority, those who have proximity to whiteness can 
not talk about gender inequity. Those who don't experience racism can be like, oh, why is Christopher here again to talk about black issues? And I get actually, I have many meetings where people say to me, oh, but that was in 2020. What about other groups? And I'm like, we're talking about workplace, we're talking about organizational culture, we're talking about belonging. Shouldn't everybody belong, right? We don't get to have fatigue. So I, I don't like these kind of conversations about like gender fatigue, race, racial fatigue, because privileged people can have fatigue. Those who don't have to constantly navigate being excluded can have fatigue, but the rest, the rest of us can't. Now, I do acknowledge that in certain contexts, the conversations need to be nuanced. So like when I lived in Grenada, it wasn't so much an issue of racism, but it's an issue of colorism and classism, right? Those are the things, right? It's not like it's, oh, you're rich, you're poor, we got problems. It's not because you're black or you're a half black or anything. Like, you know, it's, it's colorism that comes those issues. So I guess you do have to nuance the conversation. So, you know, if you're gonna talk about gender issues, uh, it's not just blanket gender issues. It's knowing that if you're having a conversation in a certain community context, just because uh, certain issues or priorities in Canada, those may not be priorities if you're having this conversation in Southeast Asia, in North Africa, in Latin America, and so on. So perhaps in that way, but for the people who are always made to feel uncomfortable, who have to live with discomfort, fatigue is a is a luxury that I that we don't have. That's all I'm gonna say. No, that's you know, and that's the thing. I was gonna raise the issue of, you know, diversity fatigue. That's the broader context of of this discussion. And you know, Chris, you made excellent points in terms of how everything is nuanced. And and you know, and, and something that came to mind, uh, just to add to this conversation is, because of this discomfort from the white cisgender male. Now we're starting to see, especially in the US, we're starting to see the conversations about anti-transgender, anti-abortion, right? So that's a perfect example of why other people are, are becoming uh, uncomfortable and why they're responding through policy um, and, uh, policy and social issues, right? When it's wrong in terms of that. So um, does anyone want to add to that or we can or we can definitely move on? No, I think you're absolutely right. I, I, and I agree yeah. with Chris right here. Um, I'm just eternally exhausted and fatigued. So I don't even know what other fatigue I can throw yeah. onto myself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is nothing, yeah, there's nothing that's going to add on to it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're, we're trying to survive, right? Like our fatigue is a fatigue of survival. Right. <laughs> survival and, fatigue. and for them, their fatigue is like, oh, another book club, oh, another town hall. <laughs> It's like, you know, those town calls aren't even effective. So I don't know what you're tired wow. about. Like, why are you tired of yeah, going to yeah. for an hour? Yeah. Like, oh, we have to dedicate two hours to take this course. It's like, I have to live every single day coming into this office being like, are you in the right room? Yeah. Oh, are you sure you're in the lead for this meeting? Yep. Oh, I wasn't expecting you, Christopher Scipio. I'm like, no, that's me. I am Christopher Scipio. Yes, it is me in the flesh, yeah. right? You know, it's yeah. way of being like, and, and these are the things, right? So it's uh, it's, a, exactly it's an interesting conversation. It's, it's exactly you know, it's saying, Chris. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. like me. You know, one of the things that that really bug me, um, you know, about town halls or you know having all these resources for people, it's like, what behaviors have changed at the end of the day? Right? Mm -hmm. That's something that that really that really bugs me, except for the fact of those who are being made uncomfortable. They're the ones who feel the, you know, the fatigue of seeing that we want change, right? And change isn't happening where we're working in society and all of that. So, you know, we're asking so, why we're having these conversations. Why are we exactly. still having this conversation? Haven't exactly. we come so far? And it's like, no, you know. the, the reason why we're having this conversation is because we haven't, and we haven't put this to bed. Therefore, this is continually happening. And that's why we have to continue to talk about it. If you want this not to be the circular argument that it is, then maybe we need to stop this behavior. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I, I just, it's like, we, we, I can't make it more clear than that. So I think, yeah. 
yeah, you feel the fatigue, you have no idea how, you know, it feels for us to consistently and constantly have this circular argument over and over again, because otherwise we would not be existing, like this would not be existing, we would not have global conversations and see Andre all this time, right, Andre? Not to say that, you know, there's any problem with that, but just saying. All right, carry on. Uh, I know, I know. That was that was a shot at me. I got it. That's fine. But anyway, besides the, the besides the fact, so you know, um, we've had an excellent conversation about you know diversity fatigue and and all the programs and training that exists. You know, like implicit bias training, and it really doesn't help and all that. You know, at the end of the day, what do we need to do to become better allies? You know, especially you know, whether you're, you know, for us, it's, it's more, how do people become allies for, for us and especially for women, right? So, you know what, I'm going to leave the, I'm going to start with uh, Christopher because, you know, we're both cisgender males here, right? So, and Chris has been a strong advocate for gender equity in, in the federal public service. So what, what have you seen and what, and what are you uh, noticing um, and what can we do as cisgender males to become more allies for women in the workplace and women in general? That's that's the first thing. Well, that's, that's a good question. And um, before I answer that, what I want to say, though, is this allyship goes multiple ways, right? Because um, women need to be allies for other women, too. And we'll get them. And I know Saleha and Priya would get to that about all the times that like a white woman stabbed them in the back, <laughs> talking about gender rights, right? But forgot all about you. So, but for me, and this, I'll say this over and over, but allyship is a verb, right? It's an action, right? So my approach to this is uh, for, the, for the woman in the public service who I have an opportunity to mentor, to sponsor, it's really getting to know them and finding out for, from them what do they need me to help them with? Because th there was a time when I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to speak up on this issue. I'm going to talk about it. And they're like, but I didn't ask you to, Chris. I could handle this issue on my own afterwards. Where what I need your help is over here. So it's about making space. I think um, all of us have privilege in different ways, right? So um, one of the things that I do with my team is even if I let on the file, I will let the junior analysts or the senior analysts to, to give the briefing. I will get space so that they can speak up. Um, you know, I think we've all been in those meetings, Andre, where one of our female colleagues makes a comment, no one listens to her, but then a guy repeats it and it's a brilliant idea. So what I'll do is be like, you know, as Saleha just said, this is a good point. And I also want to compliment Saleha because she went further than I went in my thinking on this file. So, and they're like, oh, who should we assign this file to? You know what? Priya would be great to lead on this file. Oh, well, Priya hasn't led, she's not this level. Just because she hasn't led this level doesn't mean she can't do the work. How about we support her? And what I'll do is I'll make sure that if I task you with something, I'm giving you all the supports behind the scene, right? Because people talk about like sponsorship and support. And it's not just like, I'm going to say your name one time, but I have to be there with you, kind of like giving you some protection, lending some of my social capital so that you're set up to succeed. And I think that is something that we can do, like always being there, regularly checking in, um, letting people know that, also preparing them for the reality that like, hey, I might be an ally. Most people out here are not going to be allies. They might say they are, but their behaviors are not. So also explain to them what's going on, letting them know what you're doing, always taking people to meetings with you, letting them speak first, acknowledging them. Uh, those are some of the things, but also uh, taking a step back when you're told to. So it's really about amplifying what they are saying. We, we do allyship with a group. We don't do allyship for a group. We do it with them. And the validation comes from, from that group. Uh, Saleha, I'll turn to you. Uh, thank you for saying that because I kind of just written one liner in front of me was stick your neck out for the person that you're supposed to be sponsoring. You know, that's basically what 
sponsorship is. It's like you said, it's not just dropping one name at one time in a little whisper somewhere, right? It's actually saying you're absolutely right, giving that person the opportunity to prove themselves, not setting them up for failure, but actually, you know, giving them all the support that they need. And I think when we talk about that allyship, it, it really goes a long way when we have, when we talk about gender equity and gender equality, it, we cannot consider gender as being, uh, a, you know, one dimensional stick figure thing. It's, ex there is, there is intersectionality. There is, there is the fact that gender identity is a facet, one facet of an individual, um, whereas everything else just is impacted by it as well as also impacts the, the, the gender experience as well. So I think it's really important to keep that in mind um, for women like me and Priya who find ourselves in situations where we may be designated driver in certain scenarios, it's okay for us to, to find and support other people, other women, other racialized women to come forward and to become, um, you know, to, to, to be given more authority, to, to be provided that support, to, to basically what I'm honestly saying is what's really important for me as a, as a racialized woman, as a woman overall and as a racialized woman specifically is that I don't become a gatekeeper. And the fact that I have been given this tiny little space to stand in the shadow of whiteness, uh, just because I've been, I've been, you know, finally in an, in a hierarchy, given that position of, of a little bit of authority to say, here we think you are the model, model minority, or we think you're good enough and you're like us more than anything else. So here, um, we will give you this job to do. When we're, whenever, whenever women find themselves in those scenarios, I think it becomes imperative on them to create more equitable processes, uh, which is, I know, difficult, which is absolutely exhausting. And that's where the fatigue definitely would come in. But it's, I mean, unfortunately, we have to, we, we, don't, we don't do this work alone. We always stand on the shoulders of other giants. And in, in my case, I know that if it hadn't been for certain women, white women included, brown women included, white men included, brown men included, who hadn't allowed me to be myself and who hadn't um, given me the opportunity to, to do the work that I'm doing, I don't know where I'd be, you know? So I'm always forever grateful and, and for, for all the opportunities that were given to me. And I'm always and forever grateful for the mentorship and the sponsorship. Um, the silent sponsorship in many cases that has happened. And I think that's just what we continuously have to remind ourselves is that if I am going to function in and decolonize the whole system around me, I am going to actually, the first thing I'm going to do is that whole mantra of divide and rule and, and create the mini minions, you know, who are going to be supportive of the colonizing systems and processes that that would be the first thing that I will just shake a little bit. Um, and and bring in other people along along the side, and then once I bring them, I also give them the the support that they require. Just like Chris said, you know, don't just don't just say here, so and so. I'm going to give you this thing, and and absolutely, if a woman speaks in the room and she's not noticed, and then I'm the second one to speak, I will always say thank you. Thank you, Priya, for bringing that up. That was an excellent thing. And it actually allowed me to think in those ways. And before the end of the meeting, I'll make sure that I'll make that as a reminder again. So these are just some little ways and means that we can continue to um, create, hopefully, more avenues for, for having a little bit more of the equity work that we want to get done. Yeah, and you know, Priya, I want to hear your story on this because it's 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 very important that we have your uh, perspective uh, in this. <laughs> I just, I mean, for me, hearing from both Christopher and Slay, it feels like you speak like like you speak my language. I feel like you know, uh, Slay, especially what you said in terms, and Christopher too, like in terms of you know, um, 
you know, having those allies that you've had in your own life, um, I think, um, have been really important and making sure that you do that as well as part of who you are. I think not to forget that is important. I'll be honest, I'm still kind of in a healing process of my own. Um, for me, I'll be very honest. The one thing that I can say, I don't think there is any more hurtful betrayal than being betrayed by your own. And I think that is something that I am completely still healing from. Um, so I'm still in that kind of process. But one thing that I've learned is that that's not something that keeps me down. That's something that along the way, I'm still um, fighting the fight in the sense of making sure that I'm bringing along um, you know, those other uh, women um, that I can. Um, because, you know, I still see myself as that leader and especially being um, a person who, a woman who's always, a racialized woman who has always kind of been in those positions that are, you know, in very male dominated situations and, and those roles, which I just enjoy sort of throwing myself into for some reason as a sucker for punishment, I think. But um, I just wanted to say that what all this especially has resonated for me and um, I just wanted to really thank you all for um, this wonderful conversation and that it just really does resonate for me. And thank you for reminding not only myself, but you know everybody who's going to be coming across this podcast and will be listening to it, um, how, how important that messaging is and that reminder that we need to still you know, pick up and, and continue on because I'm sure there's a lot of us that have been you know wounded with our own experiences um, but I don't see myself as somebody who's the walking wounded I believe that you still got to pick up and go on and you still have to take people with you and so Leah, just to let you know I wear red lipstick and hot pink lipstick during the day when I'm at the office and I refuse to think that that's not daytime makeup like I've heard on daytime television mm -mm. You just need to throw me a red sequin purse right after that, and I'm good to go at night too. <laughs> red lipstick all the way, man. All yeah. the way. <laughs> I refuse to be told that that's only for uh, nighttime and you know heavy There's makeup. No and thing. like and like heavy makeup during the day. I'm like, that's not such. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> There's no such thing as 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 lipstick of any color that you don't want. It's funny. <laughs> it is funny. Yeah. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> no, but to, to your point, Priya, like, you know, I think we have to be kind to ourselves, right? And and be patient with ourselves. Um, you know, mental health doing this work is huge, right? Like we're 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 being exposed to violence all the time, right? We're trying to solve a problem in institutions that don't want us there. They say they want us there, but their behavior shows that they don't. And we are given this responsibility. And I know, like, for example, Saleha's job, you know, mm -hmm. huge responsibilities to transform an organization. Not all the resources, not the time, not the money, but she has to deliver on it. And when racialized people see her, they're like, hey, you're not doing it enough. You know, I'm still struggling. And she's like, I am doing the best I can, because guess what? I am experiencing racism when I'm in those meetings as the only brown person at the table. And I'm experiencing racism from you because you're mad at me for not working hard enough. And it goes both ways, right? But also hurt people hurt people. And a lot of us um, who have been marginalized internalize it. Like, you know, like, you know, people talk about, you know, not all skin folk are kin folk because there are women who will turn their backs on you. There are black men who will turn their backs on me, right? Because they think that They'll get they'll have more proximity to whiteness if they sell us out. But then what happens is they're only useful for a time and then they suffer and then they come back to us and they're like, hey, I'm like, nah, because you weren't there for me. Remember that yeah. time? When you like, yeah, so no, I'm not there for you because you decided to sell us out. Yeah. But all yeah. jokes aside, I think that happens a lot. And yeah. it happens within the gender space too, because all this talk about equity and inclusion, if it's just about the number of people we hire, the number of town halls we have, and we don't address culture, then that woman leader is practicing 
male leadership with a, a feminine face, right? But there's nothing about her leadership that is actually gender inclusive. And there's black leaders in government who do nothing that is anti-racist. They literally mm -hmm. reinforce the same stuff. Yeah. And already she's like, but look, we have a black leader. And I'm like, well, I kind of wish you had a white leader then because this black person ain't no better. So <laughs> what are we doing, right? <laughs> you know, so I think part of this conversation as we give advice to people, as we lead these workshops is to say, drill deep. Like it's not about a uh, hundred different initiatives. It's about two initiatives that we're going to do really well, really long-term. We're going to look at the system, how everything's interconnected so that we change the culture. So that when you do come into the office and you wear your pink lipstick, they focus on the quality of your briefing note and your presentation and not your lipstick. Because, <laughs> you know, you know, you said you're in the military and I know like, you know, we all have these jobs, but you ever notice some of those people who have like the the, the body uh, earrings where they like have these big holes in their air <laughs> and they got off and they have neck tattoos. Nobody yep. says they're not professional. No. Nope. But should I grow up my hair, twist it up? Yeah. Should you wear oh, pink yes. lipstick? Oh. Oh like, but but this person's tattoo right here on her neck is fine. Yeah. 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 You know? And I have and no you see that in law enforcement all the time. You see it in yeah. law enforcement, right? Yeah. And I I love tattoos. I have no problem with it. But but, I, but my issue is why is it that if they do it, it's okay? But when, when the rest of us do it, it's unprofessional, right? Mm -hmm. And that is because no matter how many regulations they change about, oh, you can wear your hair, you can do this, it's still being written from, we'll tolerate Christopher, we'll <laughs> tolerate Priya. We don't want Christopher and Priya hair, because if they did want us hair, we wouldn't need um, a sub bullet point in the policy. It would just be read in such a way that they know your pink lipstick is professional, but they got to put, and you could also wear pink, right? Because it, those are the things that like we don't talk a lot about. And I think this is why um, we're not making the progress that we should have made by now, because we've been talking about this from time, as the people would say, it's been a minute since we've been doing this. Yeah. And, you know, and in this conversation, as we close it off, you know, also, what about the transgender community, right? Mm -hmm. They're just as hurt and they're just as, uh, you know, affected by all of this. And, you know, as you, not to, not to dismiss the whole conversation, but, you know, what you said, Christopher, you know, really resonated with me, especially given the fact that we, number one, we are in mental health awareness month, right? As we're, as we're recording this episode and, you know, mental health is, not only a um, a race issue it's a gender issue it's a class issue right and these are things that they all intertwine with the work that we do and what we are doing now and we are all affected by it one way or another um you know and other people are weaponizing this against us right so these are things that we need to be aware of we need to be vigilant against um and etc so these are you know this is what i i you know this is what i notice uh, in the work that we're doing all together. Um, and I know that, you know, Christopher, you've been an, a strong advocate for gender equity, uh, you know, in the time that I've known you, you know, not only um, fighting for fighting against anti-Black racism in the in the public service, but also gender equity. And, uh, you know, I commend you for, uh, for all the work that you've done. And it hasn't been, uh, you know, it's been noticed, right? Um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's on LinkedIn, whether it's on any social media or whatnot. So these are things that I've seen. And of course, so yeah, you know, as long as I've known you, you know, you're, you know, you're just as strong as an advocate too, um, you know, and, and hearing your story, your past stories, uh, personally and professionally, these are things that I've, uh, that I've noticed. And of course, you know, without saying, uh, with Priya as well, you know, I've, I've heard her stories as well. And this is, and this is an important conversation to have given the environment that they're, that we're in. And I believe that in order for us to to advance equity in our workplaces, advance equity in our society, um, these we cannot exhaust these conversations until something is done. And I thank you very much uh, for speaking up 
in your situations and speaking up in terms of your experiences and how we move forward as a society, both as cisgender males, cisgender uh, females, uh, brown, black, myself, biracial male. So, so with that, um, I am going to close the Can conversation. Can I say one more thing? No, you go, 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 go. Thank you, oh, thank you. Because May, uh, I guess it was on Monday, so May, I don't know the dates anymore. May 17th was uh, yeah. International Day Against uh, Homophobia, Transphobia, That's and Biphobia right. as well, yes. right? Yes. And um, so the network that I lead, the Black Executive Network, we did release a message on LinkedIn for that. And one of the things for that message that was important to us in terms of equity was acknowledging the diversity within the 2S LGBTQIA plus community and acknowledging how oftentimes there's a centering of whiteness and ableism that further marginalizes some groups. And if we go back to equity work properly, intersectional analysis, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, lesbian black woman, James Baldwin, gay black man, Audrey Lord. Audrey Lord. <laughs> as, as I have her book right here, it says Black Lesbian Mother Warrior Poet, right? Marsha P. Johnstone, Stonewall. Uh, and then there's also a Latinx lady that was with her too. Um, the Comahi Collective. So in, in all this work, Black queers, racialized queers, brown queers have always been at the forefront of social justice and have always been championed this work, right? And it is those yeah. of us who actually are cisgender who I think forget about this work. Mm -hmm. So we cannot do this work without making sure that because trans, trans lives matter, right? I cannot mm -hmm. say Black lives matter and not acknowledge that Black trans women are at some of the highest risk of violence, not just mm -hmm. from uh, outside the community, but also from within the black community, because mm -hmm. we also have our own phobias, right? So we have to acknowledge these things. It's very important to acknowledge that. But in doing this work, I always go back to Audre Lorde in that there is no hierarchy of oppression, right? You know, so she says, um, you know, within the lesbian community, I am black. And within the black community, I am a lesbian. Any attack against black people is a lesbian and gay issue because I and a thousand of other Black women are part of the lesbian community. Any attack against lesbians and gays is a Black issue because thousands of lesbian and gay men are Black. There is no hierarchy of oppression. And those of us doing this work, I think that we, we know that inherently, but we always have to remind ourselves of that, that we are not fighting uh, just one type of gender inequity because uh, gender discrimination also harms cisgendered men. Right, like we have to adhere to this notion of what it means to be a man. That is so problematic. That also affects our mental health too, right? So at the end of the day, um, this this work is it's about decentering whiteness. That's what that means. And white people need to decenter it within themselves. Racialized people need to decenter it within themselves, so that we get to a place where it's not that we're tolerated, but that we were meant to be there from the get-go. And, yes. and that is the work that we need to do. So sorry for making it go a little bit longer, but I just had to oh, make that point. Be. No. Don't everything is well, no, everything is well said. You're you're you know, you're bang on with with everything that you said and what everyone has said today. So with that note, and I, and I just want to add one more thing. Pride month is next month to add to this conversation. So there we go. And that's another conversation that can go on forever in terms of you know the communities themselves but intersectionality matters and that's the that's what really matters in in in, in how we advance equity in our work so with that um christopher and salaya thank you um priya as always as an excellent co-host i appreciate it um so appreciate for both, it, thank you thank you and with that um salaya christopher um where can people find you on the socials and everywhere else uh, LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn is easy. Okay. Yeah. I am also on LinkedIn. You could also get me on Twitter at Scipio CK. 
Um, and I'm also doing a little bit of blogging. So if you go to medium.com and you search at Scipio CK, you'll also find my blogs there too. And don't forget your Ben Ren stuff. Hey. Oh my God, that's smoke. How I mean, can you, you forget ask that? about me? Not about not about my not about my boss, my job. But yes. So the Black Executive Network, um, it is only you have to be a federal public servant to belong. Yeah. Uh, but we have a newsletter. We also have a LinkedIn page, the Black Executive Network. Um, on the LinkedIn page, we do share our newsletter. We share resources. Um, you know, one of the things we really want to do is increase Black representation in the public service. And you will see in the coming weeks some uh, intentional efforts to recruit from outside the federal government to bring people in. So not trying to take from OPS, you know, Ontario, where some of you are, but the feds, the feds are okay too. We're not, we're not that bad. We could be better, but we're getting there. I mean, think, uh, think, think, think municipal networks as well. Exactly. <laughs> okay, municipal too. All right. That's something exactly. we'll do. All right. Priya, any last words before we uh, sign off for today? No. I'm just great. I'm just grateful to be part of the conversation. It was a wonderful, wonderful podcast. Like all the more. All right. Well, uh, thanks everyone for, for being a guest on this great conversation. And I bid you adieu until next time. Have a great uh long weekend for those who are Canadian. So that's it. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.